The title of today's sermon is Don't Be David. Don't Be David. Now, let me start by saying that I personally have no ill will for the name David. We have a David in the sound booth this morning who might mute me. So uh, it, it's no, nothing personal, David, or any Davids in the room. I have no ill will about the name David. Heck, the name David is in the Bible, and David is a very important character in the Bible. So the title of today's message, Don't Be David, isn't to cast any aspersion on the name David. That said, just because a name appears in the Bible, it, it should go without saying that it, it doesn't necessarily get a pass. I mean, after all, we have the name Lucifer, the name Satan, the name Jezebel. You know, we've got all sorts of names in the Bible. And, you know, Christians are known for naming their kids after different uh, Bible names. But you likely haven't bumped into a Jezebel or Lucifer lately. So just because it's in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that it gets a pass. Now, not to mention, it is important to understand that the characters of the Bible are flawed. Uh, the Bible is a, raw, is a raw account of the flaws of humanity. Uh, many of the characters inside of the Bible, these are, these are the sorts of guys that I wouldn't let near my daughters. They're the sorts of women that I wouldn't let near my sons. The, the, the characters in the Bible are, are raw, and the, and the Bible is very honest about this. It's not trying to cover it up. The way that we often cover up things or excuse things is giving us these characters in a very raw and real manner. That said, in our biblically illiterate culture today, many people miss this. And it's not just due to ignorance of, of the Bible, it's also due to the potency of our culture's infatuation with rugged individualism and pristine hero myths. We love our heroes to be, you know, Ubermans, a, a Superman, a Clark Kent, a, you know, like a, a perfect sort of character without, without flaws. We like our heroes to be, you know, just outstanding and pristine. And we, and we like to look at them and sort of see ourselves in them. And, and, and that feeds into our rugged individualism and our lack of ability to be honest with ourselves with regard to where we are at. And as the culture gets more cancely and sensitive and the rest, this just exasperates things. You know, who are you to say, and who are you to this, and who are you to that? We, 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 we want to have these individual heroes who are perfect that no one can talk about. In our culture, we love good hero stories. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible isn't giving us rugged individualistic hero stories for us to principalize as examples uh, for us to see ourselves in. There is one hero in the Bible. The hero of the Bible is the triune God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. That is the hero of the Bible. As you read the Bible, you'll meet historic mortal characters, uh, but you always want to be reading saying, where, where is the eternal immortal God? The ultimate example, the ultimate hero of the text. Thinking of the historic David, we are going to be in account this morning where we see a very raw, a very raw look at his life, his inner life. We're going to see his sin. It's a, a very candid account. We're going to be expositing, in fact, uh, uh, this account for this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day. And you'll see next Lord's Day intentionally why I want us to be in this specific account. So this is going to be kind of a part one of a two-part series as we are examining a very important section of the Bible, First and Second Samuel. That said, please open your Bibles to this section of First and Second Samuel, and I'll tell you specifically soon where I would like for you to go. But thinking of David and thinking of our hero culture and rugged individualism and 
you know, you can't tell me and we want everything to be clean and tidy. A lot of preachers, when they preach characters of the scripture, they, they turn them into these leadership lessons and the like. And, and David is probably one of the most clutch examples of this. In particular, we love the story of David and Goliath. You know, the little boy who, you know, slays the giant and preachers will take that passage and just remove it from its context and allegorize it and, you know, say to an audience, you know, what are the giants in your life that you need to slay? You know, that co-worker, you know, that ex that you broke up with or whatever, that, uh, you know, the, that weight loss challenge, you know, you need to slay that giant, go to the gym, slay that giant, pass that test or whatever, and they'll allegorize the text and make it all about you and, and, and you overcoming and you being the hero and be like David, they'll tell you, be like David. But that removes the text from its historical and theological context. When you read the account of a little boy slaying a giant, you're not supposed to walk away from that and say, wow, look at that little brave boy or whatever. You're supposed to walk away from that account and say, look at what God did. Look at the triune God. It wasn't that little boy who threw the rock. God is the one who led that rock into the skull of that giant. That enemy was an enemy of God, ultimately, and God is the one who's in control of it. You say, but David, you know, he's a, he's a man of faith, and surely he's an example for us. Yes, he is a man of faith, but you need to understand what the Bible teaches, that faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that anyone may boast. David can't say, look at that rock that I threw. You can't boast. David can't say, look at how brave I am. No, no, little boy, you can't boast. Your faith is a gift that comes from a gracious God who gives you what you would not be able to muster and what you do not deserve. According to Ephesians 2, faith is a gift. According to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, it is God who grants repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth. These are gifts that come from God. We should be reading the Bible saying, tell me about God. I need to know the eternal, immortal God. I'm not reading the Bible to find out principles or whatever for my life through uh, mortal men. Uh, all of this, to, 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 to introduce the text today, is we're going to be studying the historic David and taking a raw account at him. This is the same little boy who slayed the giant. But again, it wasn't him who did it. It was God. When you think about a little boy slaying a giant, you should look at that and say, that, that was a miracle. That was a miracle. Uh, have you seen the, the, the kid from the Middle East? Well, actually, he looks like a kid, but he's apparently an adult. Havilah, he's been blowing up on the internet. I saw one recently of Havilah, uh, and he was with Shaquille O'Neal, and he smacked Shaquille O'Neal, and I thought, yeah, that's David and Goliath right there, you know? Just a little goofy kid, and, and you look at that, and you would go, like, if Havilah beat up Shaq, you, you would know, like, hey, something, like, there, there's, there's something in the water, you know? It's not, it's not this little kid. Now, let's get into the text. I asked you to open up to 1st and 2nd Samuel, and it is worth noting that 1st and 2nd Samuel were originally given as one scroll. In our modern Bibles, uh, many books have been broken into a 1st and a 2nd. 1st and 2nd Samuel is an example of this. But if you were in the ancient world, this would have been just one massive book or one massive scroll, referred to as 
Sefer Shem Yuel. Sefer is a Hebrew word that means book or scroll, Sefer. Shem Yuel is the Hebrew pronunciation of the historical figure we refer to in English as Samuel. Samuel, Shem Yuel. Shem Yuel belonged to the Nevim of Israel. The Nevim, that's the Hebrew way of saying prophets. Shem Yuel is a part of the Nevim. He's a prophet. When you're reading this account, and we're getting into this account, we have to have this context of Shemuel and Samuel if we are to understand what's going on with David. Shemuel is the last of the historical line, not only of the, he's a part of the line of the Nevim, the prophets, but he's the last in the historical line of the Shoftim, what we refer to as the judges. Samuel is a bridge from the Shoftim to the Melakim. The Melakim is the Hebrew way of saying uh, the kings. So we're moving, as we have our Bibles open to this section, from the Shoftim to the Melakim, from the judges to the kings. Shemuel, Samuel, is a part of the Shoftim, a part of the Nevim. He's a prophet. He's, he's a judge. He will be the one who anoints the first Melech, the first king of Israel. The books of First and Second Samuel record the transition from the last Shofet to the first Melech, from the last judge to the first king. The historical figure, Saul, becomes the first king. And subsequently, David and Solomon will become Melachim that follow Saul. And then, subsequent to them, the era of the kings begins. And it's all a, a, a part of a very dark hour in the nation's history. You see, God brings the people out of slavery. God establishes himself as their Melech, as their king. And so before the time of Shemuel and Samuel, this section in the Bible, in the time of the Shoftim and the time of the Judges, we see in the book of Judges passages like this one in front of you, Judges 21, 25, that there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel because God was the king. God was the Melech over the people. And it was designed this way when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the land of promise. He was to be their king. But what we see in this passage, Judges 21, 25 in front of you, isn't only the reference in terms of them not having a melech, a king, but also we see that the people were living in a very dark hour, as I said a moment ago. What does the text say? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. You call this sort of ancient postmodernism or ancient relativism. You know, who are you to say? Who are you to impose your morals on me? I'm just being me. I'm just keeping it real. I'm just following my own heart sort of every Disney movie that comes out. I'm just following my own heart. I'm just keeping it real. I'm just doing me. Yeah, you're just doing what's right in your own eyes. You're doing what is subjective and thinking that it is somehow objective, and you are missing that there is a malek over the people. We see clearly in the scroll of Shemuel, First and Second Samuel, we see very clearly that it was a dark hour. The priests of the day were corrupted, there was a great deal of social oppression and injustice, not to mention idolatry. When you open up to 1 Samuel and you meet this character, this historical figure, Shemuel, you see that he was born into the home of a man who was a womanizer with multiple wives. Shemuel's uh, father was a horrible man. His biological mother, Hannah, was trapped in a very cruel system, to say the least, that ends up uh, with her actually giving up her, her son, Shemuel, to, to be raised by a compromised priest named Eli, and Eli's devilish and deviant sons, Hophni and Phinehas, 
who take advantage, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of the priest Eli, they take advantage of women sexually exploiting them, and of all places, the tabernacle of God. So as you step into Shemuel, you're like, the priests are bad, they're, the, the men are bad, they're womanizers, they're oppressive, there's all this injustice, you go to the house of worship and they're exploiting women there. This is horrible, this is dark. Yeah, it's dark. The scroll of Shemuel is, a, is clear in documenting that Israel's problems were moral and spiritual at heart. That was percolating over into the political and the social and international dimensions of the nation, but at heart it was a moral and spiritual problem. Instead of cleaning house and trusting God, they were putting their trust in men. They closed their ears to the word of the Lord and they turned to the news for solutions. What, what will the commentators tell us is the problem? What, 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 what will the guys on the news actually tell us what the problem is? And so they start looking to the world and secular voices to find out what the problem of the day is. We read in the text of 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the people refused to listen to the voice of Shemuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And, and we want to be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and may go before us and fight our battles. We don't want the shaft team. We want, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations because that's what the voices are telling us. That, that the problem you see with our nation and why we're having these problems is because we need to, we need to have a king. That's, that, that's what we need, you see. Rather than understanding that their plight was a part of the loving discipline of their true Melech God. God who was allowing them to experience darkness so that he could draw them into the light, so that he could draw them into repentance. Rather, rather than doing that, they blame shift. They blame shift the problems of their nation. They say, we're having these problems because, because we're, we're not like them or because of those people. Aren't you glad that we've figured that out today and we no longer do that as a nation? It's the Democrats' fault. It's, it's those Democrats. It's the Republicans' fault. It's those Republicans. It's Biden's fault. It's Trump's fault. They, they find uh, papers at Trump's and everyone freaks out. You know, oh, he's got, he's got papers. And everyone on one side is freaking out. Oh, and then they find papers at the other guy's house. And now the other side is freaking out. And you watch both of them. Reminds me of, of my upbringing, of being raised in a home that was ripped apart by divorce, where you watch... Mom and dad just fighting each other and blaming the other. That's what the, that's what the secular forces do. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their president. It's their president. You see, what we need is this president, and then our problems will go away. Well, that's exactly what was happening with Israel. We think if only we have the right people in power, then God's people will be fine. Failing to see that God's people thrive all over the world, even to this day, in the most horrible of places, with the most despicable of tyrants, God's people experience revival and righteousness and holiness and love. These were horrible times. The scroll of Shemuel, dark days. And so we are in a transition from the Shaftim to the Melachim, from the judges to the kings. And the scroll of Samuel gives us this continuous historical account of that transition. That said, it is more than history. The ancient Jewish people actually placed the scroll of Shemuel along with the Hebrew former prophets. So while this is a narrative, 
It is also filled with prophetic dimensions. In terms of history, let me give you a quick breakdown of the scroll of Shemuel so that you have context because we're going to be in 2 Samuel this morning. We're going to be studying the 11th chapter this morning and next week we'll study the 12th chapter. But it is always important to have context in mind. So here's the scroll of Shemuel. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel as one scroll. In part one, you read about Israel's sins and the providential raising up of Shemuel, Samuel, by God in chapters 1 through 7. This wraps with God giving the people victory over a menacing foe, the Philistines, that you can read about in chapter 7, verses 2 through 14. It is worth noting that the rising up of Samuel fits the seed promise of Genesis that we studied uh, this past Advent for December 22. We studied the seed promise. The story of, of God, his story of redemption in the Bible, the promise of God at the fall of humanity to our mother Eve that he would send a seed who would crush the kingdom of darkness. That seed promise that passes to the patriarch Abraham. That seed promise that comes and is fulfilled in Christ who we long for to return this day. This account of Shemuel has so many parallels with this. Shemuel begins with a barren woman motif that we find in the book of Genesis. Shemuel begins with the hope of a seed who will serve God's purposes. As well in the storyline of the chosen one, in this case, Shemuel, Samuel, he is depicted as weak and lesser and suffering. The same will be true for David, which all foreshadows the seed of David, the Christ child who comes in weakness, in suffering to fulfill God's covenant purposes. Moving on from the beginning of, of the Shemuel scroll, we move from part one to part two, which you have in front of you here for note taking. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 through 15, we have the transition from Samuel to Saul, the transition from the judge to the king, the last judge and the first king, Samuel to Saul. This account is filled with God's grace in the face of God's people rejecting God as their king. Uh, the, the immortal monarch of the people as they exchange the immortal monarch for a mortal monarchy. You move from part 2, 1 Samuel 8 through 15, to part 3, 1 Samuel 16 through 31. We see an overlap in the transition of Saul to David, David. And in this overlap, we read a great deal of drama. There's all sorts of drama and sin and cover-up and confusion. It's like, uh, you know, Kanye and the Kardashians or, or Jersey Shores or whatever. It's, it's just like what, is, like, what is going on here? Saul, the first king, is trying to kill the anointed second king, David. They, they're, they're, they're just caught in this perpetual, you know, hamster wheel. And you're just going, what is on, what's going on with these guys? What's going on with the madness here? This is, this is crazy. So we move from part three into part four, and the fourth part is really the whole book of 2 Samuel, which focuses on David's dynasty and his demise. That's where we are today. We've cracked the seal on the scroll of Shemuel, and we're in this section of God's redemptive history where he is yet again being rejected and yet again responding in grace to his people. The people reject the prophets. They reject the rule of their true king, God. And so now the Lord God is giving them what they want. Okay, you think having the right president is going to solve your moral problems? I'll, I'll give him to you. I'll give him to you. Now, meanwhile, in his own plan, God has chosen a man of weakness, David, who, who God has given the gift of faith to, who God is working miracles through, like slaying giants and the rest. And in, in God's grace, we actually read in the text that God, 
God has chosen to make him a man after his own heart. And yet, sadly, David is going to break God's heart. Now, parenthetically, I say that understanding, of course, that God is impassable and all-knowing, so this doesn't catch him off guard, and God's not going through emotional states here in the way that we mortals do. Suffice it to say, through David's failings, God is going to give him a covenant, and he's going to remind the people and us here today, your problems will not be solved by politicians. Your problems, in fact, won't be solved by you. You need a savior, and the savior who must save you has to be more than a mere mortal. He has to be divine. As we read the account of David and David's failings and the promise of the Davidic covenant to David that comes, that that he would have a seed who would sit on the throne, who would renew and restore all things, we're reminded that it's not David who's going to save the day. It is a future seed of David who will come. And on this side of the cross, we know that the seed of David has come. His name is Jesus, Yeshua, the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Eve, who has come to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. Now that said, as we come into the text and you have this title, Don't Be David, a point that I want to drive home in saying, Don't Be David, is for us to realize that we all are Davids and we need a Savior. And the Savior has come. And the Savior, at every step where David fails, the Savior has a perfect rap sheet that he will give to us by his grace. That said, let's begin with the first point, temptation. Unlike our Savior Jesus, the the ultimate seed of David, unlike Jesus, who is impeccable and has victory over all temptation and trials on our behalf, the monarch David does not. Hence, I say, don't be like David. Now, today's passage in the scroll of Shemuel provides us with a negative example for us to learn from. And it begins with temptation. Before we get into David's temptation and fall, let me quickly give you a biblical 101 on the psychology and the theology of temptation. And let me turn to none other than the great servant of our Lord, the brother of our Lord, James. And James writes this. Draw your attention up here in James chapter 1, verse 13. Let us... Let, let, let no one say when you're tempted, I'm being tempted from God. Right? It's God's fault. No, no, no. Don't say that, James says. You know, you know why, James says? Because God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So, so knock off that stuff, okay? James 1.14. But each one, let me tell you how this works, how temptation works. Let me tell you. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust... And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Let me make two quick observations here. First, the warning here not to be deceived reminds us that temptations are deceptive. Uh, Temptations don't appear as temptations. They often play on natural desires that are used as bait. James speaks of being lured by lust, which is a word epithumia, which is a word that simply means desire. You you get lured by natural desire. So there's a desire for food, for example, but temptation takes the desire for food and tempts you with gluttony. There's a natural desire for rest, but temptation comes and takes that natural desire for rest and tempts you with laziness. The desire for sex and intimacy. Oh, temptation takes that desire and tempts you with fornication and adultery and more. 
Effective temptation targets natural desires and then perverts them, twists them, and then it carries the person away once they're on the hook, like a fish in the ocean on the lure of a master fisherman. In, in addition to, I said I have two observations, in addition to the observation about the deceptiveness of temptation, about, about how it works deceptively through desire, in addition to that observation, there's a second observation for us to see here. And that second observation relates to depravity. The problem is within humanity. There's stuff in here that temptation is playing on. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the human heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. The problem is in here. We read about this problem inside of the Bible with the rebellion of humanity against God that spirals humanity into this problem that you're actually born with. You're born in sin, hence you need to be born again. You have desires in you that are a huge mess, and this is why we're not looking out here for the solutions. This president will solve the moral decay of the nation. This, this person will do it. The problems are within. Humanity is diseased from within. Left unchecked, it will inevitably come out, which is what we see with David in the scroll of Shemuel. Okay, with this in mind, let's go to the scroll of Shemuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened, then it happened in the spring, in the time when the kings go to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, if you're not aware of the context, you're going to go, Pastor Matt, your point is temptation. I don't see any temptation here. What's the big deal? What, how, 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 are, how does this verse relate to what you're talking about, temptation? Okay, well, let's give you some context and help you see this. Historically, Israel is at war. They're at war with none other than the Ammonites, who are the sons of Ammon. Uh, context here is important, so you appreciate the scene. Who are the Ammonites? Well, we read about them in Genesis 19, in the aftermath of the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, going back to Bible names, you probably haven't run into a Sodom or Gomorrah in the church. We had twins. We named them Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, those are Bible names, but usually you, we, we all know, don't be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, uh, a dark place, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. Okay, so we first read about the Ammonites there. They are descendants of one called Ben-Ami. That's the Ammonites. Ben-Ami was the son of an incestuous affair with the historical figure Lot, who's the nephew of Abraham. He, he has an incestuous affair with his poor youngest daughter. It's, hor it's horrible. Ben-Ami, who was born, became the father of the Ammonites, who grew into one of the greatest enemies of the people of Israel. No, they, they come from the home of Lot. You know about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and his family that walks in darkness. Lot's youngest daughter wasn't the only one who got caught by her father in incestuous relationships. His eldest daughter did too. Mind you, in the biblical accounts, to make it more twisted, it, the finger isn't only pointed at the dad, but the daughters are actually implicated in this. The, the daughters are said in, in the text to have drugged their father and seduced him. What kind of dad is this? How did he raise them? Why are they engaging in this kind of behavior? What a dark home. 
Well, the oldest daughter gets pregnant, and her son was named Moab. Moab. The Moabites and the Ammonites are products of this incestuous, dark home, and they are ferocious and formidable enemies of Israel. In Exodus, when the, the children of Israel are being rescued by Yahweh, and, and Yahweh shows himself as the great abolitionist through Moses who rescues them from slavery, when they're being rescued from slavery, the Ammonites stopped them from passing through their land and sought the help of Moab to attack them and kill them. From the Exodus, all the way up to this moment here in 2 Samuel, Moab and Ammon are lingering threats to the Jewish people. In fact, a sign of Israel's compromise for the land that was given to them by God in a promised victory, that they, that they would walk in faith, that they would take this land, but they didn't. You still have Moab and Ammon there. Now, David is no stranger to the reality that the Ammonites and the Moabites are from this dark context. He is no stranger to the issues at hand. In fact, when things were bad with Saul, when I overviewed the scroll of Shemuel for us, David had to run as an outlaw, and David found refuge behind enemy lines, not only as a Philistine mercenary fighting against Saul's, uh, enemy Nahash of Ammon. David, David knows the Ammonites. He's, he's been there. He's worked there. He's been in exile there. David knows these guys. He knows their abilities. These guys have the ability to pull a Putin and just attack a country and start ripping it apart. All of this to say, this is where the temptation comes. The text tells us that David stayed home. In fact, in the chapter before this, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, we read about the Ammonites who are harassing and humiliating the Jewish people. You go, why are you staying home when the battle is raging and given this dark context? In 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 4 through 5, you can look at it. We read about there in 2 Samuel 4 and 5. 2 Samuel 4 and 5 of chapter 10, look at it. What do the Ammonites do? They beat down David's delegates, strip them half naked, shave half of their beards off to publicly shave, shame them. And this stunt erupted in an all-out war with the Ammonites, and the Ammonites hire foreign nations to fight against Israel. The Jewish military held ground and had some victories and whatever, but it was far from over. This was an all-hands-on-deck matter. This is a time of war. All able-bodied men must fight, especially the Melachim, the kings. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says what? When the kings go out to battle, you're supposed to be there, buddy. Recall what we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. What did we see in this text? It is the kings who go out and fight the battles. This, this is the cultural historical context. Kings go and fight the battles. Kings are the key for success in battles. Pagan religions believe that the gods endorse the kings who ultimately determine the outcome of the battles. Who, who's, whose god is, is, is going to overthrow here? Will it be the god of the Ammonites and the Moabites? Or the true and living god of creation, the god of Israel? Oh, but the king's not going to go? No, he's going to stay home. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 in front of us, this is the temptation. Every man who is able to fight goes to war, especially the king. But David doesn't go, we're told. He stayed in Jerusalem. He plays hooky. He calls in sick. He no-shows. The book of 1 Chronicles gives us a parallel account of this historic moment. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, 
a very close statement to what we read here in 2 Samuel. Right? You, you see the same thing. This is the time when, 1 Chronicles 20 tells us, when kings go out. But David, what does he do? He stays home. In the next chapter of the Chronicler, in 1 Chronicles 21, we actually read of Satan inspiring David to rebel against God and the taking of a census of the people, tallying his soldiers, and putting his trust in the hands of his mortal army rather than the immortal host of heaven. The text tells us that God was very angry about this, and all of this to say that we see that David's decision to stay home came in a place of darkness and things thereafter spiral out of control. Very, very fast they spiral out of control. Now this reminds me how quick things fall apart. It takes a man or a woman many years to build. It takes years to build. Years of hard work to build. And it takes seconds for it to be torn down. Seconds for it to be torn down. One afternoon for you to lose it all. You think of Hollywood stars who, who, who work really hard to get a place in a movie and, and a position. Or you think of an athlete who trains for years and years and years, muscle memory and strength and the rest, years and years and years, only to lose it all. The decision to stay at home spirals fast on David. Speaking of staying home, I, I, th I think in our own contemporary context, of the temptation to stay home rather than to do God's work, of the temptation to stay at home rather than to worship with God's people. Because ultimately, in this historical context, battle and the rest is, is, sounds foreign to us, but this was a part of their corporate responsibilities. It was a part of their corporate worship. The militaries had praise bands on them. This was a, this was a part of your worship of God. This is what God's doing in history to claim this land, to bring about the promised seed, to save everything, usher in the new heavens and new earth. This is a part of your worship responsibility. And in our contemporary context, we think of our worship responsibilities on a Sunday morning and the temptation that no doubt many of us face on any given Sunday to stay home. The priority of parents in Christ's church takes a backseat to the secular priorities of the world. We place uh, service and, and corporate worship behind so many other things. Sports, rest, work, travel, and more. In the days of David, this was their service. Israel is to be the priesthood of the nations, to establish the land, to secure the temple, to proclaim peace, to call the nations to be reconciled to God. They were to place God's service above everything else. I'm reminded of when Moses died and Joshua led the people in the land against gross darkness and injustice. These were dark days, and as Joshua's life was near the end, Joshua called on the people to renew their covenant with God and to serve God. Joshua told them, look, you have a choice. Are you going to stay home or are you going to serve? Will you serve God or will you serve the gods of the surrounding nations? And then Joshua puts his personal stake in the ground in Joshua 21. And you have that famous line in scripture, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua, as the head of his house, says, I will not stay home. I will not be passive. I will be active. David, as the head of the house of Israel, says, I'm staying home. I'm staying home. Now, what keeps David home? What tempts David to stay home? The text doesn't say. 
We, we, we see in First Chronicles in that cross-reference in 21, the devil is in the details. It, it, it could be that the devil is moving in, in fear. Uh, it could be fear. It could be arrogance. It, it could be ignorance or apathy. It could be all of the above and more. Overall, we could say what's going on here is faithlessness. David is not walking by faith. He is slowly becoming like Saul and the people that he was raised up to lead the people away from. Instead of leading them, instead of being their king, the king has become compromised. And this is very obvious as we continue reading. Look at the next verse. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and he walked around the house of the king's around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, keep in mind at this time, they didn't have, uh, you know, triangular pitched roofs like ours. So he's not going to slide off or whatever. They're flat roofs. He's walking around the roof on what probably was the tallest building in the land. Uh, given that a, a, a king is supposed to be over and to have a commanding view and, and be involved in the military, they, they have fortresses. There's not time to get into archaeological data. There's all sorts of exciting digs that are uh, from, from this area of the world that are tied to the historical figure David and possible palaces and locations and data that we could talk about. Suffice it to say, he is fortified. He's high up. From his vantage point, he has a view of, of the city. It's like being at the New Getty or whatever, or the observatory. You can, you can see the whole city, and he's looking over at the landscape, and instead of beholding the landscape and Instead of having a moment of repentance and saying, God, why, why did I stay home? I know I'm supposed to be out there. That's supposed to be my act of worship. I'm, 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 I'm supposed to be the king, and this is, what, this is what you've called for me to do. Instead of being on his rooftop, having a moment of repentance, and, or, or just looking at the creation and going, oh God, and just worshiping the God of creation as he's on that rooftop with that beautiful landscape. Instead of worshiping, instead of drawing in repentance, his eyes are on flesh. His eye is caught by the sight of a woman. The first moment, of course, of seeing a beautiful person is not the issue in the passage. A beautiful people can walk by all the time. That's not the issue. The issue is that he's entertaining it. What may have been an accidental gaze turns into voyeurism. There is a saying that you can't prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent a bird from making a nest in your hair. David's head is nesting on flesh. Look back at the text. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, speaking of appearances, from all appearances, it seems that David is in a dark place. A place of dereliction. He avoided a military battle, but was missing the spiritual battle in his home and his heart. Staying home would prove disastrous. Things would unravel fast. He is depicted in the account as alone and idle. I'm reminded of the well-known adage that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Those who are not actively engaged in the work of the Lord will be allured into the devil's playground. I'm reminded of Jesus who said in Matthew 12:30, He who is not for me is against me. You see, there is no room for anything other than active faith that is for the Lord. A faith that fights for the light against the darkness. A faith that is worshiping and, and serving the Lord's business. The pastor Chuck Swindoll, he has this line where he says, Our greatest battles usually don't come when we're working hard. 
They come when we have some leisure, when we've got time on our hands, when we're bored. Pastorally, let me say that there's a lot of wisdom here for us, namely, that if we are using our time well serving the Lord, there is often much less time and opportunity for temptation to have its way. You're simply too busy doing the Lord's work. There's just not time for that other stuff. When you have a routine at the gym, when you're meal prepping and everything's planned out, you're, you're going to have greater success than if you don't have a schedule and things aren't planned. As they say, failing to plan is planning to fail. Added, failing to be busy in the Lord's service is a recipe for the darkness to dupe you and drag you down. Even the most godly among us, David, David, in the early parts of the narrative, is, is a godly man. But at this point in the narrative, we are quite a ways from Goliath. We're quite a ways from the man who we meet in First Samuel, who, who God chooses to make a man after his own heart. We're, we're, we're sadly just a few chapters from the Davidic covenant that was given to him graciously by God. And you go, man, what is going on with your life? We can speculate. Maybe it was the prosperity and the comfort and the leisure. But the bottom line as the Lord told Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. David is not living like sin is at the front door. David has the door wide open. He's on the roof, engaged in a voyeuristic peeping Tom moment. He's perched on his tall fortified tower, a symbol of the king's power. Instead of using his position for watching over the kingdom and, and praying or having a moment of repentance, instead of prayer, he's peeping. He's using his powerful position to literally, pun intended, look down on this woman. I say pun intended because we all know that the poor do not have the same privacy privileges in society as those who are well off. As I've traveled the world, and maybe you have as well, even here in our own city, if you think about the homeless... There are struggles for privacy, not to mention places to wash and have access for water. The, the less that you have, the more hard it is to get privacy. I, I've, got, I've, I've got seven kids and they got one bathroom. It's, all, it's always a thing, you know, it's all, who's in there, you know, can I get in there? Um, I'm, on the to- I'm taking a shower, but I need to sit on the toilet. Privacy goes out the window when you don't have a lot. They didn't have running water in the ancient world. There's, there's not plumbing in, in your house for the, for the average people. This is likely a washing place for women. It is the perfect place for perverted types to peep. A place that the powerful should protect for dignity. A, a, a place where the weak should be protected. The women in that culture should be protected. But here is their protector, their king... And he's objectifying them and literally looking down on them as objects for his eyes. Using a a word like peeping Tom can sound a bit boyish. It is far worse than a mere boyish thing. He is playing with fire. Indeed, our God is a consuming fire and lust is a horrible sin that is against the holy God. We're, we're, We're told that when... Sexual immorality, when these sorts of perversion, we're told inside of the Bible how to treat these things. So, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told to flee sexual immorality. You, you run. You, you, you don't keep looking. You run. You, you, you get out of there. It's not to be toyed with. 
Paul told Timothy to, to flee youthful passions. Get out of there, run. David is doing the opposite of Job, who said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. David's eyes are consumed with lust. There is a saying that the eyes of the human body are like gateways to the human soul. It is no wonder that Jesus gave that, that, that famous hyperbolic teaching in Matthew 18 about how it is better for you to pluck your eyes out if they cause you to stumble so that you would enter into blessings in the afterlife with one eye rather than go to hell with two eyes. The hyperbole drives home the reality of the stakes. You are playing with fire, son. You are playing with fire. You know, the scene of Samuel is a lot like our culture today. But our, our towers are, that we're on top of is the internet. And like David, it's very easy to find flesh to objectify and consume. Granted, the text actually doesn't say that Bathsheba was naked. There's, uh, of course, evidence from the ancient world that people would bathe with some of their clothing on. So she could have been covered. Nevertheless, if the case that David was, the, the case here is that David is uncovering her with, with his eyes. He's objectifying her. And in terms of the modern equivalent, we think of the porn industry in our culture. For sake of time, I have a lot of stats here on how destructive it is. What it's doing to our children, what it's doing to marriages in our culture, literally what it's doing to our brains. I'll skip ahead, but for sake in terms of referencing the science there, it's literally rewiring brains. It's, it, it's changing your body, this consumption, this, this lust. When I was a kid growing up in the, you know, the Reagan era, there was the campaign, the war on drugs, and they had that commercial. Some of you remember, you know, the dude takes an egg and fries it. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? This is your brain on porn. This is your brain on lust. It's literally rewiring you. And we are all seconds away from grabbing our tablets, our phones, or whatever, and being right in there, just like David. He can climb up on that roof and he knows where to look. This brings us to the next point on the outline, the transgression. And let me say this, that David has already transgressed God. We read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, our Lord Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. David is already deep in this thing. His eyes have entered into adultery. One might say, well, but he doesn't know. He doesn't know she's married. He doesn't know that. Well, you need to read your Bible. Look at verse 3. So David sent, and he inquired about the woman. And one said, Isn't it this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? Uh, folks know she's married. As I already noted, David is aware of the Ammonites. He has ties there. He's aware of these other nations, these other cultures. The Hittites are referenced here. But as one commentator notes, the information that David receives should be sufficient for him to end the matter. Who's the woman? Oh, she's, she's married. So you have no business of going further. No matter how great your position or your power, nothing gives you the right to take another man's wife. Now added to this is the fact that David is married himself. I actually, I've, I've seen commentators who try to spin this and make Bathsheba into a Jezebel. You know, she's, she's out on the roof and sees David and starts, you know, I'm like, uh, that's not in the text. That's not in the text. I saw one commentator actually who was like, tried to blame this on David's wife. They were like, where's David's wife at? She should be protecting her man. I'm like, what? What? What study Bible are you reading? You know? 
uh, the, the Tate study Bible? What's going on here? You got some weird womanizing stuff going on here. The fact of the matter is, uh, where is his wife? Well, David has quite a few of them at this point in the narrative. As you can see, David has a problem. People who don't know the Bible might be tempted to give him a pass and say, but he's young. I mean, you know, this little boy, he rose, you know, killed a giant, rose to fame. I mean, he's like Justin Bieber. No, he's in his 50s. He's in his 50s. He, sh he should know better. People who don't know the Bible uh, well, or, you know, maybe they know a little bit about the ancient world. They might say, oh, but, but, but polygamy was common in the ancient world. Yeah, but that doesn't make it okay. You say, oh, everyone's doing it, you know, everyone's running off a cliff, are you going to run? Yeah, it's common in, in the ancient world, but in the biblical world, it wasn't supposed to be common. Adultery was horrible sin. It, it is a violation, polygamy is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. It goes back to the very beginning of Genesis. For this reason, a man and woman will leave, cleave, and they'll become one flesh. Ad Adultery, polygamy are, are off limits in the scripture. Yeah, it's common in the ancient world, but it's not supposed to be common among the people of God. Especially the king. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, look at this. God explicitly forbids the king of Israel than having more than one wife. It's right there in the text. Hey, hey, look, when you enter the land, right, when you get a king, he shall not multiply wives for himself. Or else his heart will turn away. David, David is knee-deep in this thing. Which is why the temptation is so powerful. Because he's, he's already in the game of objectifying the ladies. The text is clear that the king is not to pursue or possess multiple wives. Let alone, look at the text, for him to possess wealth and decadence. And David is immersed in all of this. The king is supposed to be humble and lowly and devoted, devoted to his wife, his family, his nation, his God. The king is supposed to be a servant of the people. An impartial monarch who cares for those who are in the land of promise. As we can see, however, David is not concerned about being impartial and caring for the people in the land. He's refused to defend them in battle and take his responsibility. And here he sits in his tower objectifying his citizenry. The woman specifically is being reduced to an object to sexually conquer, and, and her husband is an obstacle to that objectification. Worse than an obstacle, David sees her husband as subhuman and racially inferior to himself. What do I mean? Well, notice how the text describes him as a Hittite. As one scholar notes, and I quote, David chose to ignore Uriah's military record and instead to fix his attention on his racial origins. It is obvious and noteworthy that David refers to Uriah as Uriah the Hittite, while the author of Samuel refers to him only as Uriah. The expression Uriah the Hittite is a term of derision, based solely on the fact that he is of Hittite stock. Now this weekend is the MLK weekend. It is a time when our nation thinks about the legacy of racism and ethnocentrism. Uh, horrible evils, poisonous evils that ruin hearts and societies. This racialized or ethnocentric objectifying of Uriah is sad. It is also convenient. Uriah has something that David wants. And so he has to reduce Uriah to something that's lesser. Three-fourths of a person. You're, you're lesser. And that helps me rationalize my sin. Now the hypocrisy here for David is that David has 
Moabite blood pumping through his veins from Mama Ruth, if you know your Bible. Further, Israel was to be a light to the nations, so a Hittite serving God in Israel is exactly what a king should desire and celebrate. In fact, we see in 2 Samuel 23, 39 that Uriah the Hittite was acknowledged as a great warrior in Israel's army. So this man is dedicated to Israel. This is a man who risks his life defending the land and the king, but this means nothing to his king. Beyond his national loyalty and military prowess, Uriah is a worshiper of David's God. As one commentator notes, it is obvious that Uriah has forsaken his own people and their gods to live in Israel. Marry an Israelite woman, fight in David's army. He is no pagan to be put to death. He is a proselyte. In spite of all this, David looks down on him. David has grown accustomed to having the finest of everything. His palace is the finest around, his furnishing, his food, his help, all the finest. And now he looks from his penthouse and sees a woman who he regards as fine. How can a woman so fine belong to this Hittite? She is fit for a king, and the king intends to have her. Look at verse 4. David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. I, I, I actually heard a preacher this week when I was studying this passage turn this into a principle about the Billy Graham rule. You know, uh, you shouldn't be alone, with, you know, the Billy Graham rule, you've heard of this, you shouldn't be alone with a woman. Or, or what kind of left-leaning left progressive press in 2017 started calling the Mike Pence rule. Maybe you followed that. Because Mike Pence at the time said in an interview that he guarded himself on one-on-one -on -one situations with people of the opposite sex. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. But the Atlantic inferred that it was misogynistic. You, you know, that's misogynistic. Now, it's really interesting, too, because at the same time, we had the Me Too movement going on, right? And toxic masculinity going on and the rest. And you say, here's a man who's saying... Like, we should protect and we should take care of. And you go, man, our media is so confused. Anyway, this isn't a text to teach us uh, the Billy Graham rule, per se. Uh, we could insert it and say maybe if he observed that, he wouldn't be in such hot waters. But the text is far worse. It's far worse than a Billy Graham rule here. The text is telling us Bathsheba didn't have a choice. They took her. They took her. The word here, yikahe, it, it means to take physically by force. This is kidnapping. This is a manipulated maneuver in which she is brought to a king. We read three words in the Hebrew here. Yiskav imah. Yiskav is a euphemism for sex. There is nothing in the text that indicates this was consensual. I say this because I've seen some interpreters suggest as I noted earlier, that Bathsheba's trying to have a fling with a king. I, I heard someone say that, a fling with a king. You know, she's like, oh, he's watching me. Let me seduce him. The text does not say that. In fact, it says the opposite. The men are supposed to be off at battle. Now's the perfect time to go on your roof and, and, and wash yourself because the guys are supposed to be gone. She, she, I mean, she has every right to, to go on a roof and, and, and do that. They collect rainwater on the roof. That's the common thing to do. And, and she's doing the common thing. You guys are supposed to be gone. She's not intentionally seducing. And the text doesn't say this. Bathsheba is actually painted in the text as a woman of the Torah, of the law of God. She submits herself to ceremonial washing. Understand, bathing was not common for the people, especially for the poor. 
Bathing is a part of ritual, however. Jewish faith involved various ceremonial washings. And since the water is limited, people would collect rainwater on their roofs. They would use that rainwater for ceremonial washings, not so much for taking showers. The ceremonial washings are a part of your, your worship life. Uh, when you go to the temple, you go through ceremonial washing, mikvaot. Uh, in the book of Le Leviticus, you read about these ceremonial washings, specifically in Leviticus 14 and 15. You're supposed to wash yourself if, you, if there's skin issues or disease, and as well for menstruation and, and bodily discharge. Leave it at that. Now, that's, that can sound weird to us because our, our culture is not a ritual washing culture. In, in our Christian tradition, of course, we have baptism. But baptism is done once. We don't do continual washings. In the ancient Jewish culture, they did. And like the sacrifices, they continually did those too. And the washings, like the sacrifices, are symbols. They're driving home something that's really important for the people to understand. Sin makes us unclean. We wash as a symbol of our need for something external to us to wash us. The blood of the sacrifice reminds you that life is being exchanged for death. The washing of the ceremony as you approach the blood reminds you you're not clean to approach this uncleanliness, blood guilt, sacrifice, washing, it all works together in the rituals of the Hebrew Bible. Back to Bathsheba, she is a woman who is concerned for her Bible. Notice, she is the one who washes and not David. She washes before and after this scene. Now based on this, we can reconstruct a case that is likely that initially she is washing on the roof after a menstruation period, and after the case, she is washing after the sin of this defilement of, of rape. She wants to be clean. She symbolically acknowledges that she's been soiled, that her body has been made unclean. Now next week we're going to study chapter 12, and there is a prophet who confronts David in the matter. And there you see very clearly Bathsheba's not blamed. It is David who has held account. In a situation like this, what could she have done? Resisted the thugs who took her? Her husband's gone. She's defenseless. Besides, they are the king's men. And once they brought her to the palace, what is she going to do? Scream? She's surrounded by the king's men. In that culture, women aren't even allowed to testify in court. What is she going to do? Raise accusation against the king? This is all the, the, the worst, you know, this is the ultimate sort of Me Too moment. She has, she's powerless. And this brings us to the next point, the treachery. This sermon is going lines a bit long here, so forgive me, but it's a powerful text. We read in verse 5, The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This lends credibility to the roof bathing as a ritual bath of her being observant of Torah. So, so after menstruation, women are supposed to wash themselves ceremonially to acknowledge uh, a cleanliness. And the process, you recall, of, of the fall of humanity... What happens in the fall of humanity? The issue of childbirth with Eve and pain and blood and menstruation and all this. This is a part of the ceremony of going, we need to be cleansed. We need to be made right. And so, so here you see that from the text then, it, it, it means that she would have been fertile when David's thugs came and got her. And then she washes herself afterwards because she's been defiled. David puts two and two together and goes... Oh, that, you know, that's what she was doing on the roof. And now he finds out, oh, she's pregnant. He puts two and two together. And he puts orders to try and cover up what happens. 
quickly, let's look at the text, verse 6. David sent to Joab. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. He sends him from the battlefield. And Uriah comes to David, and David starts asking for the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of war. And David said to Uriah, go to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went to the king's house, and a, pre a present from the king was sent out after him. David orders Uriah to come back from the battlefield, and he sends him home. He's smoozing Uriah. He's a valiant and very strong warrior. And this guy could, you know, kill me. He could kill me. I got to get him some presents. I got to butter him up and bring him back from the battlefield. Give him a good night with his wife. They'll sleep together. And then, you know, the baby, everyone will go, oh, you know, Uriah, you know, Uriah came home. And David hooked him up. He gave him a present. Verse 8 says, he gave him a present. If you're reading the King James Bible, it's worth noting that it translates the present here as a mess of meat from the king. Um, I like that, a mess of meat. That's the way to win over a man's heart. He got him a mess of meat. Big old plate of some carne asada or whatever. And so he sends him home. Uh, it's interesting, too, that the language here, in terms of rendering it as a mess of meat, it could be meat from sacrifice, meat from the tabernacle, which further implicates David that he's taking meat from the sacrifices to God and using it to cover up his tracks. It's, it's, it's a very, 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 very sad passage. Uriah, we read in verse 9, he's like, no, no. He sleeps on the door of the king's house with all of the servants, and he didn't go down to his crib. Verse 10, when they told David, they said, Uriah didn't go to the house. He, he didn't do it. And then Uriah said to David, verse 11, the ark of Israel and Judah are in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to the house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do such a thing. You see, he's a worshiper. He cares about the ark. The ark is the presence of God. His heart is with the presence of God. He, he wants to serve God. David is blinded by his sin. David, verse 12, says to Uriah, stay here today. So you could go to all that, that, you know, worship stuff tomorrow. And Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servant, but he did not go down to his house. It's just spiraling, isn't it? David gets him liquored up. And many of us know from unfortunate, sinful experiences that you hopefully regret, liquor dulls the senses and blurs one's judgment. It can cause, it can cause you to do things that you'll later regret and even forget. You know, earlier I mentioned the Mike Pence rule, and in that interview that, you know, the secular people jumped all over, he said something else in the interview. He said that he doesn't go to events where they're serving alcohol without his wife. Call it what you want, but there's wisdom in that. So many people ruin their lives, ruin their lives on the sauce. It doesn't work, though. Uriah is a warrior and a worshiper. This frustrates David. He's had enough. And so next, what happens in the text, and for sake of time, we're not going to read it. David orders for him to be killed in battle. He says, uh, he tells, sends a word to Joab and he goes, you make sure that he gets sent him to the front of the line to make sure that he gets killed in, in battle. And David's plan worked. We read in verse 17, Uriah the Hittite died. He has managed to soil Bathsheba with sin. And now he's soiled Joab. Like Bathsheba, Joab was in a position where if he tried to resist, he could be dead himself. And so David uses his power 
to oppress, to rape, to murder, and to soil others in the process. Joab sends word, if you look at verse 18, 19, 20, 21, he sends word that Uriah the Hittite is dead. Joab is in fear when he sends this word. He speaks in these verses of the king's wrath, verse 20. He speaks in code also to the messenger because he doesn't want the messenger to know. And he makes a reference to Abimelech in verse 21, which comes from Judges 9, of a man dying in battle. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to get caught in this. So verse 22, the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against him at the gate. The archers shot him. He's dead. Joab did the dirty work. Notice how David plays the fool and acts like to the messenger that that was a surprise to him. And David gives him what is likely an ancient proverb or a colloquialism. The sword devours one uh, as well as another. We're all going to die someday. Meanwhile, we read in the text, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, had died, she mourned for her husband. She's arguably been raped and her husband's been murdered. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife, part of his harem, and she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Lest the reader think this is okay, Samuel provides prophetic narrative that we're going to get into next week where we see it's condemned. I've gone far too long. Let me land by talking about the truths that we learn from this passage. The truths that we learn from this passage, let me give you three quick points. The historical account of David's downfall is a sad study. As I showed today, it began far before 2 Samuel 11. At, at this point, 2 Samuel 11, David was already immersed in polygamy and moral compromise. David shows no signs of regret, let alone repentance. The pregnancy nor the blood of Uriah woke him up. Instead, he covers it up. And by way of conclusion, let's reflect on the sobering reality of sin and our need for a savior. Three points of application that we learn from the text. Sin comes by a process, number one. Sin doesn't just happen. Sin doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Sin doesn't pop out of nowhere, ex nihilo. We talk about falling into sin... But the fact of the matter is we don't fall into sin. We walk into it. We step into it. We run into it. We jump into it. We swim in it. It's not by accident. Recall what we saw in James 1, in the beginning of the message, that temptation comes when one is enticed by their lust and it carries them away. In the Shemuel scroll, we saw David didn't murder a man in a vacuum, nor did he sleep or rape this, this, this woman in a vacuum. He... He was already choosing to stay home. He was already saying, I'm, I'm not going to engage in, in worship and do my responsibility. Uh, he's, he's in rebellion. Sin comes by a process. Second, sin often has a pattern. The pattern goes like this. A person is discontent with God. Their joy is gone. They grow cold. Or maybe they've gotten comfortable. Typically, they're alone. They're removed from God's people. And then temptation comes. The person sees something that leads them to believe... That if I get that, then I'll be happy. If I get that, then I'll have more comfort. If I give that, then that'll be a replacement for the lack of company that I have. They see something. They believe that that's something and what it's promising them is going to get. Then they desire it. Then they take it. And typically in their taking of it, they objectify it in the process so that they can satisfy and rationalize their decision. They can rationalize the forbidden fruit. It's not forbidden to me. I can have it. 
Speaking of forbidden fruit, it reminds us of the very thing that we read in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, 6, when our parents fell, the women saw that it was good, that it was a delight, that it was desirable, and then she took. It's very similar to the verbs here that we see in David. David saw, David sent, David took, David laid. It begins with the eyes and, and what we're taking in. They were led to believe, our father and our mother, in the garden. They were led to believe that God was not enough, and so they wanted more. They believed that it would be good for them to, to, to get from this. They saw it, they desired it, they were tempted, they objectified the fruit as something to make them happy, just as David objectified Bathsheba. In a sense, we could say the fruit is sort of the original porn. Something to objectify, something to consume. Something that is not yours, that you want with your eyes, and soon your flesh craves it. Then temptation moves to transgression, and then it moves into hiding. That's the pattern. David, like Adam and Eve, tries to hide. He tries to cover up. It's not fig leaves, it's the blood of Uriah. Like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, we continue the pattern today. Our eyes objectify things all around us. In this technological world, we monetize what we objectivize. Click the button, give me money, give me hits, give me following, give me power, give me that, give me her, give me him, give me, give me, and it'll make me happy. There's a pattern to sin, there's a process to sin. Praise be to God, there is a purifier, brothers and sisters, for sin. We read in the text, what David did displeased the Lord. Verse 27, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. I say don't be like David, but the fact of the matter is we're all like David. Maybe not to the same degree, maybe you haven't had your friend killed, raped someone, committed adultery. But we go to the teachings of our Lord, and he says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you are guilty of that. You have anger in your heart, you are guilty of murder. The fact that you didn't get an opportunity to act on it doesn't somehow exempt you from this. As we read David and say, don't be like David, we also have to confess that we are like David. And it's only by the grace of God that we haven't acted on our impulses. He's restraining us by the ministry of the Spirit. We read of Bathsheba washing herself, washing herself. She acknowledges she's unclean. And we're reminded that by the grace of God, the Father has sent the Son to wash us in His own blood to free us, to cover us, so that we have forgiveness. As we conclude, we're going to sing some songs and come to the communion table. And the communion table is reminding us that we have a purifier. We have propitiation. We have, we have one who is, who is not like David at all. He is not a womanizer. He is not a murderer. He is not a derelict. He goes to battle for us. He suffers and dies for us. And his bride, the church, he loves. And he's given us this table and he calls us to this table to see our need of him. Don't be like David. Be like Jesus and cry out to him this morning as we come to the table for his forgiveness, for his repentance, to stir in our hearts, drawing us unto him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We come to the table now and pray that you would move through this time. Father, I pray that you would move through our songs of worship here this morning, stirring our hearts in faith towards you. Lord, like David, we have sat on the couch. We have put things over you and your service and work. 
we have chased after other things and pursued other things and we've made a mess of things. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see our sin as you see it. As your word tells us, if we fall short of one area of the law, we're guilty of it all. Lord, we need you. We need you. Thankfully, we have more than ceremonial washing. We have genuine and true washing, Father, and your Son who was sent for us. And so as we think of his blood that washes us, his body that was broken for us, Lord, we pray that you would draw us to our need of the gospel here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.